piece um, with uh, sort of keeping up with what the kids have been learning in the back with the Kids for Truth. And so we've been going over uh, Truth for Living, and we've been looking at particularly the doctrine of Scripture. And so I thought I thought this is the day that the kids are sort of saying their catechism questions, uh, giving the questions and answers and saying the verses. And so I thought it'd be good for us to review uh, everything that we've looked at up until this point. And uh, there are just really three main questions that I'd like us to ask and discuss. So I want us to have a little bit of interaction about this uh, regarding these questions that we've had. Um, so we have 10 questions, all of them dealing with the Bible. And so we'll begin with the first one, which defines what is the Bible. So what is the Bible? The Bible is the only inspired, written word of God above all other books in wisdom, power, and authority. So there are three questions for each of these questions. I've seen you questions about the question. Um, three questions that I want us to discuss. I want us to discuss in what ways will the enemy attack these truths um, why is this truth essential? And then thirdly, how does this truth help us in our everyday walk with the Lord? So defining what the Bible is, the inspired written word of God, it's above all other books in wisdom, power, and authority. Um, let me ask you, what ways do we see that truth being attacked uh, on a daily basis? It's out of date. So people will say the scripture's out of date, that it's... Uh, um, it's, you know, needs to be updated and, and brought up into to, to modern, modern man's uh, acceptability, okay? What else? What other ways is this truth attacked? That it's, not that it's not inspired, so that it's primarily the product of men, not the product of God, okay? It's what? Okay, they're historical writings. They're right. Okay. What else? And I think it's important that we that we talk about and discuss the different ways that that it's possible that these things will be attacked, so that we can recognize the attacks when when they come and they come across our way. Okay, it's been changed. It's been changed or corrupted, um, corrupted by men over many many years. Okay. Looking on the other side, like what what Paul is saying, that there's other inspired or other authority that's equal to the Bible. Okay, so why is so the question that may be put out there is why is the Bible the ultimate source of authority? Aren't there other equally acceptable source, sources of uh, um, of authority? I, I put down too that the devil will seek to elevate other truth sources to the same level as Scripture. Um, and I think the main one that is often brought up is our experiences. Who, who am I to tell you, even if the Bible disagrees with what my experience is, you know, who am I to say that my experience is wrong? And so oftentimes I think that and, and elevating ourselves above the Scripture in that way often happens. Any other thoughts? Okay. Now, why is it essential? I guess it's not essential, so we can. <laughs> I mean, anything goes if that's not true. Okay, anything goes if this isn't true, Joe. What were? I, I, was, I was just going to say, I mean, that, to answer the question, you have to write. 
right. They answer the questions. They answer. It is the only written, inspired word of God. Um, it's essential because how else would we get to know God? Um, it's it's not possible for us to know Him from a saving perspective if we seek that by any other means outside of His Word. Now we can know things about God through nature, uh, but uh, it's not sufficient to bring us to a saving knowledge of Him. I also put here, like, what are we put on earth to do? What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So if that's what we're created to do, to glorify God and to enjoy him, then if we're not filling that purpose, will we ever find true satisfaction in our lives? No. So if we seek to fulfill or find our purpose in anything else, that leads us away from God's word, we're never going to find satisfaction. We're never going to fulfill um, our purpose. That's that's why the psalmist talks about that God's word is sweeter than honey off the honeycomb, that it, it provides a satisfaction that other things cannot provide. And then how does this help us in our everyday walk with the Lord? How does knowing that the Bible is the only inspired written word of God above all other books in wisdom, power, and authority, how does that help us in our everyday walk with the Lord? Or what does, what does it call us to do, I guess, in our everyday walk with the Lord? Consume. To consume it, all right? It is necessary, all right? You cannot live the Christian life that we've been called to live apart from interaction with, consumption of, um, meditation upon the Word of God. Uh, We need it, desperately need it. We need to be seeking to learn from it constantly. Um, Should we ever be satisfied in where we are in our knowledge of God from the Word? No. So it's, it's something that we're to continue looking to because it is the only place wherein we can get God's Word. It is above all other books in wisdom, power, and authority. Of course, the passage that went along with this was 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. And then this is the major differentiation, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which what is the word doing in us as believers? It's working. There's power in the word of God. So that was the first question, sort of setting off, defining what the word of God is. The second question then is, how can we really know, how can we know that the Bible really is the true word of God? How can I be certain of the veracity of God's word? And I think when we talked about this, I said there are a lot of external evidences that point to the veracity of God's word. There's archaeological discoveries that seem to confirm what the Bible says. There is Just the very fact of the history of the Bible was written over a period of 6,000 years, and it forms a cohesive whole. Um, I'm sorry, 4,000 years, and it it forms a cohesive whole. Um, There's a lot of external evidences that show us that God's word is true, but that is not the final determining factor in our acceptance. Why do we accept that God's word is true? Because his spirit is has told us, has shown us that it is true. The Spirit of God helps us know that the Bible is true and that it is the Word of God. Now, how will the enemy attack this truth? Okay, did God really say? And and in that, 
because that's what he said to add to Eve. Did God really say so? So in that, whose whose authority is he appealing to there? Man's saying that I'm going to set my authority over God. Ben. Okay, so right. So he, he's going to he, he's going to be persuasive. Um, you know, Eve wasn't stupid. All right, she was persuaded by her own way of thinking to reject what God's word was. Today, the same thing happens. The devil is going to be persuasive. You know, I, I listen. I try to consume and and take in a a whole wealth of of different viewpoints for the sake of being able to defend the faith. Um, and sometimes I hear the things that are said, and I'm like, well, what about this? But it's always the Spirit of God that pulls me back and says, I have to recognize man's reasonings over against what God's reasoning are. So yes, the, the devil is going to lie to us about this. Any other thoughts about how the devil attacks us? Robert? Well, if somebody doesn't have the Spirit, I mean, they're so often against the Spirit. So this is just contradictory. Okay. Right. And that's a good point. When people attack the word of God, they're lacking the very thing that's needed to understand the word of God truly, the spirit of God. Right. He, he is, he is, well, he's not a decoder ring, but yeah, I know what you're saying. So, um, you know, drink more Ovaltine or whatever. So, um, but th- there's, there's a truth to the fact, like we, should we be, should we be surprised that the world doesn't understand the word of God? No, in fact, Paul says this. It's like the things of, of the Spirit are given by the Spirit. And if you don't have the Spirit, you're not going to be able to understand them. I'm going to mention something I think that's a little bit subtler. Um, have you ever sort of had a slump in your Bible reading? Or, or not even so much, maybe you're continuing on with the discipline of reading God's Word, but it just doesn't seem to be connecting. I'll be honest, there's been times in my life where that's happened, where I'm, I'm reading and, uh, and it just doesn't seem to be connecting. Um, there's a number of different reasons why that may be. Uh, maybe God testing us, trying to strengthen or, or stretch our faith. Um, I think one thing that we have to recognize, one of the ways that God disciplines his children when they've rebelled against him is who does he remove? He removes not permanently, but he will remove for a time the influence of the Holy Spirit. And so it's, it's in those moments that we can become, where, where the, we're not connecting with the Word of God, that it can be very dangerous for us as the way we think about the truthfulness of God's Word. Um, and it can lead us to start doubting, well, I'm not getting it. Maybe the Spirit's not helping me. Um, so the devil can attack us in those ways. Now, why is this truth essential? Why is it essential that the Spirit of God helps us know that the Bible is true and that it is the Word of God. Ben? Okay, so Christ promised the gift of the Holy Spirit to his people. So if this... It, I'm sorry? That he would dwell in us, that he would be with us, and that he would guide us into What? Holiness are all truth. He would guide us into all truth. The spirit of truth guides us where? To truth. So if it's essential for the spirit to do this, because if not, Christ would then be a liar, right? Christ would not be true if that didn't happen. So it is essential for 
an understanding of the veracity and the truthfulness of what Christ has said. What other reasons why is this truth essential? Okay, it's from God. All right. Joe? Because man has an innate desire for truth. Okay. And if we're not going to follow and listen and obey the real truth, then we make up a lie. Okay. So we, we need the Spirit to guide us into truth because otherwise we would be guided into error or particularly a lie. Our own understanding. Yeah, exactly. We've turned every one of us to our own ways. We are told in Scripture to lean not to our own understandings, but in our own ways acknowledge Him. Um, go ahead. Yes. Yeah, and and that's and that's that's such a that's such a, a useful point. The Spirit is not just given to us to convince us of rational thought. I mean, that happens. But the Spirit is given to us to show us the truthfulness of God's Word and to guide us into the truth, not for the sake of being able to answer a theological test, but to live it out. And so, do we believe what Christ said? Will the Spirit guide us into truth? And will that truth then be the lamp for our feet and the light for our paths? And that's where I think it comes in with the second or the third question How does this help us in our everyday walk? with the Lord. I I trust that the Spirit is going to take His Word, that when I open it up, that He's going to work and and He's going to uh, apply it to my life, that I'm going to um, walk by faith as I encounter God's Word in dependence on His Spirit. Now, this is the thing. I don't understand or, or recognize anything from God's Word apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I'm dependent, fully and completely dependent upon him. And that's how we should approach the scriptures. We should pray that the spirit opens our hearts, illuminates God's word to us so that we can know how to grow by it. The passage for this is 1 Corinthians 2:12. We have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that. So what's the reason? So that we might understand the things and this is the gracious, freely given to us by God. Th- question three. Well, how about being chased in my life? Okay. I think that would be, you know, that the Bible is really true. And if God chastens you, then you know that you are a true uh, child of God. Well, yeah. Right. He chastens all those whom he loves. Yeah. Yep. It's, I think it's, it for, I think it begs the question to make your calling an election sure. If you're coming to God's word, I'll say this. If you're coming to God's word and you're not ever being convicted about something in your life, something's wrong. Yeah, you've, you've looked in the mirror of God's word and you see all these nasty warts of sin and you say, oh, I look fine. And then you go out. Some. What's missing there? The influence of the Holy Spirit. And it could be either that he's removed the Spirit for a purpose of discipline or that you've never had the Spirit in the first place. So yes, that, that's, a, that's certainly a reason why the Spirit's given. So conviction. Yes, conviction. The Spirit was given to convict you of sin. Yep. A righteous system of 
Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And that's and that's continuing with like the conviction part is continuing with the believer. It's not just conviction. Oh, I accept Jesus. Now I don't ever have any more conviction. No. In fact, you should have more conviction. The more you grow in Christ, the more the Spirit's going to show you how you don't measure up with him. But now you're going to have a desire wrought by the Spirit within you so that you want to be like him. And he shows you the pathway to seek to be more conformed to his image. So yes, absolutely. Conviction and discipline is a part of what the Spirit does through his word. Thirdly, how did God give us the Bible? The answer here is God inspired holy men to write down his words exactly as he wanted. So this is the doctrine of inspiration. Um, So in what ways does the enemy attack this truth? So I'll say it from the perspective of of like a pastor who's looked at and, and viewed other churches and other denominations that there are people in the church, quote unquote, who deny this truth. They say that the scripture is primarily the product of men, not of God. They, they, look, they look to say, well, well men, men are the ones who, who have, that maybe they got some things right about God, but overall, over all the years and everything, it's been changed, it's been corrupted so much that we can't be certain that it's truly from God. Robert? I have a specific example. Okay. Okay, give us your specific so, example. Okay. About regarding, I suffer not for the name of Jesus. That's just Paul's opinion. Yeah. And so they they pick and choose what in the scriptures is inspired and what's not. Right. So if we take away inspiration, who then becomes the authority? We do. And so so it's you can see why it would be an area where the devil wants to attack us on. Remember. Has, ha, did God really say? I mean, it, in one way, the devil's tricks are, the, are not, it's, he's not doing anything all that, all that new in his strategies. His strategies are the same. It's just the way in which he attacks us with them. So, so essentially, he's going to seek to make the scriptures only the product of man's activity. So if Paul says something that doesn't jive with the current view of society, well, that's just Paul's opinion. I've heard people talk about how Paul hated women. Um, and, and when you understand what he is saying in the context of the society in which he's saying it, he protected women in ways that had been unthinkable to that society at that time. So all that to say, the, the spirit or the, the devil, not the spirit, the devil is going to try to make us understand or think that the Bible is only the product of men's work. And the scriptural Truth is, no, it came from God. Now, why is this essential? It's sort of one of the obvious things. Like, if, if, this, isn't, if this isn't written by God, then who cares about it? Like, and and that, that becomes one of, the, one of the most important things of understanding the doctrine of inspiration. If the Bible's not written by God, then it's no different than any other book written by men. But it is written by God, and so we can trust it. We can depend upon it. We can look to it. Robert? If this was true, the Bible would be a lie. Right, yeah, absolutely. Or 
Holy Spirit spoke to Sergeant David concerning you. Yeah. And and do you see like because it's such a pivotal pivotal doctrine, that's why it's attacked. Because it forms the basis of everything else of the Christian faith. Um Right, exactly. Everything else crumbles. And, that's, and, and when you find churches or denominations that have accepted or, I'm sorry, have rejected the doctrine of inspiration, what ends up happening to them? They begin to crumble as well. They turn into nothing more than, than religious social clubs. Now, so Revelation has two forms. All right. Revela- the question was, what's the difference between revelation and inspiration? Revelation is, is God's um, revealing or showing of himself. So there are, there, we talk about in Scripture, we talk about there's two different types of revelation. There's, there's general revelation and special revelation. So general revelation is just the fact that the heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, that they speak of his divine power and, uh, and, uh, and infinite wisdom. Romans 1 talks about that. So we can look out and we can say, and, and even that basic truth is being denied by people. It, it, you look at people who say, well, the, that the world is just the result of chance and consequences of, of chance things happening and that God had nothing to do with it. And so we look to evolution as, as sort of the way that everything came about. That's an attack of, of general revelation. But then special revelation is when God comes and specifically reveals certain things about himself for the purpose of redemption to his people. That's special revelation. And it takes different forms throughout the scripture. So sometimes it would happen with God speaking directly. Sometimes it would happen in dreams. But we know at the very end of all things, the writer of Hebrews tells us that God in times past talked in various means and and different ways, but now he has spoken to us in his son. That's why John begins his gospel. In the beginning was the word. And so Jesus Christ is the penultimate example of God's revelation. It is God's word in the flesh. And then the outgrowth of that is what we see through inspiration of scripture. So so scripture is inspired as a means of God revealing himself. Um, Yes. So it, it, yes. So God chooses to reveal himself. He chooses the means of revealing himself through inspiring scripture. Does that make sense? Yeah. Good question, though. All right. Um, why is it important for our everyday walk with, with the Lord? Why is this doctrine important? And I just point out, God speaks. We, we do not have a God who is silent. We have a God who speaks. You know, that's the one thing that differentiates God from every other God in existence. The true God is a relational God. He's a revealing God. You know, if, if I were to go out there and cut down a tree and, and carve it into an, uh, an idol and set it up, and I'd say, tell me what you want me to do, is that idol going to say anything to me? No. Well, I can maybe make the idol say something, but if I make the idol say something, who's really speaking? I am. And so, so from an everyday perspective, we do not have a silent God. We have a God who reveals himself to us, who wants to be known by his people. I mean, if you think, you think about that, God says, this is who I am. 
And so what should we be doing if we love him? Looking to his word, seeking to know him more. The passage for this is 2 Peter 1.21. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Which brings up the next question. I'm going to try to move a little bit faster because we've got 10 minutes left and I have six or seven more questions to, to cover. Um, does the Bible teach any errors or lies? No. Why? Because, okay, because it's all true, but, but why is it true? What, what makes the Bible true? God, yeah, God cannot lie. And so God's word is true and without error because God tells only the truth. Now, the enemy attacks this in a number of different ways. Um, he'll seek to challenge the reality of truth. Um, he'll come in and, and say, well, if we can find error in one area, then we can sort of throw out the rest of the truthfulness of Scripture. Um, so I think I've mentioned before I have a friend who has seemingly turned from the faith. Um, and I've been sort of watching him, quote-unquote, deconstruct his faith. You know what it all began with? It all began with him beginning to doubt the literal creation of the world by God. He started to accept modification of the truth that God created everything. Um, now, he started off in an area where I could say, okay, maybe there can be some, some wiggle room here about the age of the earth. But that very quickly led him into accepting wholesale everything that you see in evolution. And now, if you start throwing out what's said in, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, well, you can use those same rational ways of thinking to start throwing out every other thing. And so now he essentially um, questions the truthfulness of the moral imperatives of Scripture. Maybe homosexuality isn't a sin. Maybe, maybe it's, maybe, it, I mean, this, and this is a guy who went to one of the most conservative Christian universities in this country who grew up in a, in a background, in a Christian background, who knows everything. But yet, when he began to let error in in one error area, the whole thing began to crumble around him. And now he's seemingly turning completely from the faith. I pray that the Lord would grab a hold of his heart and turn him back. But I, I can just see illustrated in his life, compromise in one area has led to disregard of essential truths in other areas. It is, it is a domino effect. Why is... It is essential that the Bible does not have any errors. Well, if the Bible has errors, can we trust it? No. And so it's essential that we believe that the Bible has no errors because it is the way that shows us how to know God. So how does this help me in my everyday walk with the Lord? Here's what it comes down to. I am not going to stand before any one man and give an account for how I looked to God's word. I'm going to stand before the one and only true God. And so I have a, a responsibility to respond to his word as the truth that it is said to be. Passage for this, Psalm 119, 160. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So what does the Bible teach us? Question five. 
The Bible teaches what God wants us to believe about him and how he wants us to behave before him. So I'm going to quickly just go through. I'm going to go like the next three. I'm going to try to move through quickly. Um, The enemy attacks this by saying that there are equally reliable and legitimate means of knowing God that account for the society we live in today. So they're going to say, look, you don't have to have, the Bible doesn't, the Bible gives you an idea of what ancient man thought about God. But we've progressed now. We have a better understanding of who God is now. Um, and, the, and that requires a rejection of what the scripture says. Um, this is essential because the only sufficient way of knowing and relating to God is found through his word. How do you know God? How do you, if, if someone will come to you and say, I want to know who God is, where would you point them? Would you tell them to go out into the, to the woods, hug a tree? Would you tell them to, to begin transcendental meditation? No. If someone comes to you and says, I want to know God, you have to point them to the only place that shows them who God is truly, the Bible. And this helps us in our everyday walk. Listen, we're to love God. And so if I want to know who he is and how I'm to behave before him, where do I go to find that out? In his word. How do I commune with God? I commune through the word, which is given to me through the Holy Spirit, both inspired by the Spirit and illuminated by the Spirit. So when, I mean, do you think about what actually gets to happen? You get to experience spiritually the presence of God in your life when you read it. The Spirit does things when you read the word of God. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Now, can we be sure that God's word is still good and true today? And this sort of answers the questions of people, well, we've progressed, time has gone gone on, mankind has gotten better, and the answer is yes, because God has preserved his word to be good and true forever. It never changes. Now, the enemy attacks this by pointing to the possibility of alternate scriptures. And this is more dealt with when we talk about the doctrine of canon. Um, And the reality is God has preserved his word in a way that is blaringly clear that he did it. If you look just at the number of manuscripts that are in existence today, if you look at the New Testament in comparison to other similar works of the ancient period, they don't even hold a candle. If we look at what Aristotle has, we maybe have 25 manuscripts that are about a thousand years after when Aristotle wrote. For the New Testament scriptures, we have over 5,000 New Testament manuscripts, some of them possibly written within 20 to 30 years of when the actual original was written. I mean, if you look at it on a chart, it is blaringly obvious that God has preserved his word. Why is it essential that God preserves his word? Well, if I don't have his word, I can't have hope in him, right? Because he's chosen to reveal himself through his word. So it's essential from that way. And then how does this help us in our everyday walk with the Lord? When you open up the word of God, you are reading something that has been miraculously provided by God for millennia so that you can know who Jesus Christ is. Um, In Genesis 3.15, God said that there would be a curse reverser who would come and reverse the curse. 
And by implication, that meant that God would have to identify who that curse reverser was. And he did that in his word. He was true to the promise he made at the beginning. And his word is a testament to that. Matthew 5.18, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Question seven, why do we need the Bible? All right, I think some of this is a little bit overlap because we've hit on a lot of things. Why do we need the Bible? Well, we need the Bible to show us who God is and how we can be right with him. And this is important through who? Through Jesus Christ. Listen, the Bible is given to point us to one particular person, Jesus Christ. Um, the enemy is going to attack this and say, you don't need the Bible. You, you, can learn more, you can learn more and advance more in this modern world if you shed your dependence on the word. But the Bible is what, what we call necessary from a theological standpoint. It is the only way that God has chosen to savingly reveal himself to fallen mankind. Without the Bible, we have no hope. And so this helps us in our everyday life because the Bible's necessary for every day. If we want to know God, if we want to live our lives before him, we have to go to it. We cannot relate to God apart from his word. 2 Timothy 3.15, how from a childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Moving right along, question eight. How can we truly get to know God? Well, it comes by faith, which faith is brought about through hearing his word. Romans 10.17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And just quickly, um, if, the, if faith comes from hearing, and hearing specifically the word of God, and then the devil comes and attacks the veracity of God's word, then what happens to our faith? It's bankrupt. It's empty. If, we, if he can remove the very thing that engenders faith in us, then what are we believing? Not the God who has truly revealed himself in his word, we're believing an idol. We're going after a God of our own imagination. If the devil can wrestle away our conception of God and untether it from the word, then we are worshiping in and worshiping to and turning to a God that does not exist. It's essential because we, we don't just have a nebulous faith in God. You, know, you ever heard someone say, well, I believe in God. Well, what does that mean? Who, who is the God that you believe in? And if he's not the God of the Bible, does he exist? No. So we have to have our faith tethered to God's word. And how does this help us in our everyday walk with the Lord? Well, it points us to the real God. It shows us who the real God is. Um, you ever have, like growing up, do you ever have an imaginary friend? Right? I had an imaginary friend for a little bit of time. Here's the thing with an imaginary friend, all right? You know that the imaginary friend is imaginary, that he doesn't exist. And so, you know, it's great to have an imaginary friend, but if you go in the backyard with your imaginary friend and you want your imaginary friend to pitch some balls to you, is that going to actually happen? Why? He doesn't exist. 
And this is the thing about having a God of our own imagination. We may conceive of him in the way that we would like him to be, but when we, if I can reverently coin the phrase, when we take him out in the backyard to play catch with us, he's not actually going to throw the ball. And so when we go to depend upon a God who doesn't exist, is he going to fail us if we're trusting? Yes. And this is, this is where I think so many people who have grown up in church and had a conception of a God of their own imagination become disenchanted with Christianity because the church has not given them the God of the Bible. They've given them a God that they want to hear. And then they're surprised when that God that doesn't exist doesn't do anything. So we have to look to and know the God of Scripture. Question nine. What authority does the Bible have over us? And because the Bible comes from God, it holds the highest and final authority for what we must believe and how we must live. How does the enemy attack us in this? He tempts us. Every temptation is a call to disregard the authority of God in your life and to go your own way. And the devil does this over and over and over again. He wants us to reject the authority of God's word. Now, we wouldn't, we wouldn't stand up you know, on Wednesday evening and say, I reject the authority of God's word. We would say we accept it. But when we give in to sin and when temptation is something that pulls us away, what we are doing by our actions is denying the authority of God's word. We're saying, we know better. We're just like Eve. We look at the fruit. We know what God has said, but we think our way is better. And every temptation is an attack on the authority of God's word. Yeah, exactly. And, what, and how did Jesus combat? He looked to the word. He combated his temptation by looking to the word of God. Why is this essential? Why is it essential that the Bible has the highest and final authority for how we believe and how we must live? Well, because how else are we going to live our lives before the Lord? And how does this help us in our everyday lives? God speaks through his word. We do not have a silent God. And so he, he, it's not like we have to guess at how he wants us to live. Isn't that a wonderful thing? We know what's needed to please God. And it's faith in Jesus Christ, who is our righteousness, and then that reality lives its way out in our lives before him. It's glorious truth. It's a wonderful truth that we know that. 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And then question 10. We're getting there. (laughs) Final question. How does God want us to feel about the Bible? God wants us to love the Bible so much that we are eager to obey and to trust it. It's amazing to me how God doesn't just command us to do things. He also calls us to feel certain ways about things. Um, I, had, I, heard, I remember a pastor one time talking about it's like, what would you think of this, of this marriage? If two people got married and they said their I do's at the altar and then they looked at each other and they said, that was nice. And then they went their own ways and never talked to each other again. 
What don't they have? Love. They don't have love for each other. I wonder if that's true about the way we treat God's word. We should love it. Not because we're fascinated with a book, but because we're fascinated with the God who's revealed in the book. It serves, it's essential to us because it serves as a mirror for our hearts. Our attitude about God's word or lack of love for it does not indicate a problem with God's word. When we're not loving God's word as we ought to, where's the problem? With us, not with his word. And it helps us in our everyday walk when we're not loving God's word as we ought. What it shows us is that we're displaying a great lack of love for him. And it can be a rebuke to us so that we would walk before him in truth. The psalmist said it in Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. So, that's our review. First 10 questions. We'll be starting the next theme uh, next week, and we're looking forward to jumping into that. Let's close in a prayer. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. May we seek to be guided and directed by it in all things. May your spirit work in our hearts, Lord. Draw us into loving you more. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.